Well, it's the first week of football season, which means I yelled at the TV way too much this weekend. So I brought my water bottle up here because my voice is hoarse. So we'll see how we do. Hey, if you're new to Redemption, glad you're here. My name is Stephen. Thanks for joining us this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible and you can't afford a Bible, you can grab a Bible. They're in the back. That's our gift to you. We would love for you to take one and to have it and then to bring it back with you every week when we spend some time opening it up and seeing what it has uh, for us. We believe the Bible. That's one of our core values around here. And when we say we believe the Bible, we don't just mean that we believe it in a general sense, like, yeah, the Bible is good. It means that we believe the Bible is exactly what the Bible says, that it is the inspired word of God, and that it has in it what we need for a life of godliness, for the life that is truly life, for the abundant life that God has for us. And so we believe the Bible, and so we open it up every week to allow it to speak to us or to allow God to speak to us through it. Now, this morning, we are in kind of a transitionary week between summer and fall. And I guess that's kind of what Labor Day is, right? It's the transition between summer and fall. And this week, what I want to do is kind of transition our series. What we did over the summer, and at the beginning of the summer, I told you what we're not going to do this summer is kind of slow it down, take it off, and said we're going to ramp it up. And that's exactly what we did over the summer. We had church week, which was a full night or full week of church every night. We had a pretty doctrinally heavy summer as a church. And what we did over the summer is we laid a strong doctrinal foundation for who we are as a church. Now, as we enter into the fall, we're going to do exactly what the scriptures did. And that is after you lay a doctrinal foundation, you then talk about the application that comes out of it. See, there's no application in the scriptures apart from solid doctrinal foundation. And sometimes we misunderstand application if we don't first establish doctrinal foundation. Now, what we also see in this is the continuity between the two doctrine and application. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to root us in an idea, a really important one, that'll set us up for the series we're going to kick off next week. The series we're going to kick off next week is simply titled, Jesus Loves You. Jesus Loves You. And I'm going to talk through six encounters that Jesus has. And now every time Jesus has an encounter, he sees people but he doesn't just stop there. He sees people, he heals them, and he frees them. And that, all three of those things, is the encompassment of Jesus' love, seeing, healing, and freeing. And so we're going to talk about what it means that Jesus loves you over the next six weeks, starting next week. But what I want to do today is root ourselves in this idea of God's love. In order to do that, we're going to study Ephesians chapter 3, which was read earlier. If you have a Bible, you can join me there. I'm going to kind of hop around the chapter because it's a long one. And uh, although Paul is obviously writing, he's brilliant in a sequence, uh, some of the thoughts are connected to previous thoughts. And so I'll have to hop over to Ephesians 2 for a little bit to give us a full understanding of the chapter. And, and then I'll have to hop around the chapter a little bit as well. I'll try to point it out as I'm going. I want to start in verse 4 this morning. It says, when you read this, Paul operated under an assumption that people were going to read 
the Bible. And so when we read this, this particular letter, or the Bible in general, when we read this, you can perceive my insight, this is Paul writing, into the mystery of Christ. If you like a good mystery, Paul's got one here. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, Paul ruins it. He tells us what the mystery is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, we have to understand that we're stepping into Ephesians 3 here. We're kind of just hopping into it. But that in uh, this Ephesians 3, there is like a lot of stuff that is preloaded before it. And so we have to understand a little bit about what is preloaded into this to fully understand what Paul is communicating, the, the essentialism of what he's communicating, and also the, the grandiose nature of what he's communicating, because what he's communicating is something big. And we can just kind of read it and go, yeah, no, this is how we've always understood it 2,000 years after he wrote it. But the moment that he was writing it, this was striking. See, what... Paul is describing is that up until the moment of Christ, and I'll explain that in a second, up until the moment of Christ, that there had been God's chosen people, the Israelites, and there had been everybody else. I'm not going to go into like a full doctrine this morning of the chosen Israelites, but we'll hint at it a little bit. But what Paul is saying here is that the the promise that was made to Abraham in chapter 12 about how God would bring redemption through Abraham's seed, which was a continuation of the promise that was made to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3.14, the proto-gospel, the first time the gospel is whispered. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world, and the world gets to look and say, how will God respond to sin? And how does God respond to sin? He jumps right down in the middle of it. He comes down into the garden, and he makes a promise of redemption. Then that promise is continued through Abraham. God makes a promise to him. And so we have to understand what Paul is writing here first historically. For thousands of years, the Israelites have seen themselves as God's chosen people, rightfully so that the promise would go through them, that through them. And so it did through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They were saved right through what God did with Joseph, then through Moses and then the kings and ultimately David, and then on and on through Christ. And so historically speaking, the moment that Paul is writing about has been building. And it's not just historical. We have to understand it culturally. One historian writes that for the Jews, their perception of the Gentiles was that they simply existed to be the kindling of the fire of hell. That's pretty extreme. Why did God create you? Something has to burn in hell. Okay. So we understand that what Paul is writing has great historical and cultural significance. In fact, the very first potential split of the church is over this exact thing. In Acts chapter 15, we read of the first big church meeting. And in the first big church meeting, they're showing up and they're trying to address how are we going to deal with the Gentiles? 
And it had the potential to split the church right from the beginning, but they unified instead around the gospel. And so Paul now is just kind of carrying the message of what happened there. So Paul is saying, there's a mystery, and here's the mystery, y'all, that we're now all one. What Paul is also doing here, by the way, is he is teaching us an avenue and a path even here on how Christians today are still to unify. He's also teaching us something about what, uh, when we see great division in the world, how unity is supposed to be brought in that division. Something that's not hard to see right now. How is this supposed to happen? Well, in verse six, he says that this unity, this bringing together of separate things, this bringing together of two strikingly different things that have great historical and cultural tension uh, in their center, what, the way to bring those two things together, he ends it with these three words, through the gospel, through the gospel. Paul is teaching us where unity is supposed to come from, through the gospel, He's teaching us how to deal with racial tension through the gospel. He's teaching us how to deal with historical building up of tension through the gospel. And doesn't the world have all of its methods, all of its theories, all of its philosophies on how to deal with these things? And as Christians, we're supposed to look and say, how did God deal with them through the gospel? Well, then first we must understand this gospel. And Ephesians chapter two is one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel. So what I want to do this morning is just walk a little bit through Paul's writing of the gospel. And by the way, if you're not Jewish, which I'm going to guess is almost everybody in here, what I'm reading is really good news because it means we were on the outside. We were looking in, but we got invited in. And what were we looking into? We were looking into God's plan of redemption as outsiders. We were looking in, alienated, Paul's going to say here in a moment, from God, from his love. We were on the outside looking in. You ever been there? Those moments when you're on the outside looking in? You're at home looking on Facebook and somebody else is out there doing something else and it looks like it's so much fun and you're on the outside looking in? You drive by something, you go, that looks awesome, but you're on the outside Looking in, remember what the great theologian Michael Scott said in the office? I love inside jokes, hope to be a part of one someday. When you're on the outside, looking in. Looking into what? How it was supposed to be. See, God shows us in himself what it was supposed to be. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the Trinitarian nature of God existing in perfect joy, perfect love, and perfect fellowship, all as it was supposed to be. And God existed in that way for all of eternity. Well, all of eternity hasn't happened yet, but all up until the moment of creation, God existed in himself with no need, perfect Great joy, the Father loving the Son and the Spirit and the Spirit loving the Father and the Son and the Son loving the Spirit and the Father and each to each other, bringing joy and friendship and community and love. And then God created in Genesis chapter one, put man in the middle 
so that man might bring glory to that triune God. And then sin entered into the world and disrupted it all. And in the moment sin entered into the world, it broke man's ability to be in that perfect relationship. It broke man's ability to be in relationship with each other. So Adam and Eve were naked and felt shame. See, in the moment sin entered into the world, it disrupted man's relationship with God. It also disrupted man's relationship with each other. And so thousands of years later, Paul is writing and he's saying, have you seen the division that exists between humanity and God? Of course you have. But have you seen the division that exists between humanity and humanity? Of course you have. Is there a solution to this? Of course there is. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of what God exists or what God has in himself, that perfect serving relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And where were we? On the outside, looking in. Yeah, that looks good. I'd love to have it someday. And that's where humanity was. That's where the Gentiles, Paul is saying, that's where we were. He describes it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember, don't forget this. At one time, you, Stephen, you, you, Gentiles in the flesh, called, I love this, the uncircumcision, end quote, doesn't humanity love to put labels on those they disagree with? Isn't this often where division comes from? We begin to just assign labels. They're those people, and they're those people, and those people, and these people. Those, they can't come together. And so we love to use labels on that which divides us. And so Paul says, remember, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And we have all sorts of labels now to divide ourselves. And there have been theories and philosophies that come up that um, uh, try to create these avenues and these pathways to restore that which is broken. And these labels then serve to divide us and we exist exactly as they did in the exact same tension that the uncircumcised and the circumcised did. It says, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He said, this was human made human-made. Remember that you were at that time, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. What's the promise? God's redemption poured out. What's the promise? That God would fix the problem of sin, that God would restore all that was broken. That's the promise. He said, you were strangers to that promise. And get this, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. You were the one left outside of the party. And you had no possible path to being invited in. This was happening. God was existing in his perfect triune nature. And the best you could do is just look at it. So that's where everybody was. Peter takes it even a step further, by the way. Peter said, even the angels long to look into the gospel. That the angels looked and they, they looked in at what was going on over there and they said, what is this? Even angels thought it was beautiful. 
what is this gospel? And we're, and that's where, that's where we were. We were just looking into this thing, this gospel. Uh, but in verse 13, but now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought. You who were once here, who were so far off from ever getting invited into that, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been welcomed in. Your only pathway, your only ticket to the party, the only way you could get in to what the Godhead was already experiencing, the only way you could get this redemption and live in your freedom, the only way you could do that was by the blood of Christ, by Jesus's blood poured out. By the way, this is why we can never disconnect doctrine and experience, or said more uh, clearly, why we can never um, disconnect knowledge and love. And there is a movement in our day to try to separate love from proper doctrine, but you can't. They have to stay tied. It's, a, it's almost like we have like, okay, we have doctrine right here and we have love right here. It's like one of those hoverboards. You've been on one of those? Cannot do it. I don't know if it's because I'm older, out of shape or what, but you see like a three-year-old can do it. I, I can't. You get on it and you're just trying to balance yourself and move back and forth and all of this kind of stuff. And it's like the church tries to do this. Like, okay, I've got one foot on doctrine and one foot on love and I'm going to try to figure it out. No, no, no. God just brings them together. He says, you stand on both. You stand on both doctrine and love. Why? Because you're only brought near by the blood of Christ. That is heavily doctrinal or doctrinal. You're brought near by the blood of Christ, by his substitutionary atonement on the cross. Don't separate doctrine from this. That's how you were brought near. You were far off. It wasn't just some kind of emotive love that brought you near. No, it was the sacrifice of love. It was the doctrinal understanding of the substitutionary atonement of the punitive nature of Christ taking on our sin that brought us in. And so now we were who, who were far off. We are brought in by the love of Christ and we get invited in. And unlike all those pictures on Facebook that you look at and you go, oh, that looks so nice. I wish I could be there. And then when you're actually there, you go, I don't remember it being as good as what I thought it was gonna be when I looked at it. Or you ever look back at pictures and you ever been to an event that was like kind of like it was okay, but then like some kind of like media publication picks it up or you see a picture of it later and it looks so glamorous. You're like, yeah, like the actual thing and the, uh, the, and, and the perceived thing, like they don't match up. Oh, not so with this gospel. Not so with this gospel. Now in this, you get drawn into it and then you get into it. God, it's better than you could have ever imagined. It's more beautiful. It's more meaningful. It hits you deeper than you could have ever thought when you were just looking into it. You get drawn in. Now, namely, what does Paul call this? He calls this the love of God. The love of God. For the only, re the only way the only reason that you could have been drawn in was through the gospel or God's love. And so you get drawn into it and you step into it. It's better than anything else. 
And now you're just in there and it's like you've, you've stepped in. I know I'm going to kind of walk over here. I'm trying to give you like a physical picture of like, like you step into something. You step into the love of God. Now you're surrounded in the same relationship that the Trinitarian nature of God was experiencing before all of time. And then in the beauty of the church is when you step in, you're not the only person that's stepping into it. There's also a whole bunch of other people that you're stepping into it with and that's called the church. And then the church and God and there's this like beautiful relationship of joy and fellowship and community and forgiveness forgiveness that is supposed to be uh, experienced in here. There was an Old Testament picture of stepping into the love or the presence of God. Moses did this, and Moses would go into the place where God's presence was, and he would step into it, and then when he would step back out, he would be glowing. There would be like a glow on his face. And what that was was an Old Testament physical picture of what happens in the New Covenant spiritually. Now, like we step into it, right? And then Moses would step out and they'd be like, oh, he's been with God today. And what that looks like for the Christian is we like step into it and then we step out of it and like a glow all of a sudden comes across and it's like, oh, that person has experienced the love of God. It's almost like they're glowing. It's like you can see it radiating off of them. Like Jason talked about last week, then it radiates off as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And somebody goes, how do you stir up those types of things? And you say, I don't stir those things up. I just hop in here, experience the love of God. I step out and it just comes out. This is the gospel. You you step in and the love of God just... flows over and then you step out and you just can't help it. It just flows out. Paul, in his, in chapter three, he, he would add a couple of things to this. He would say, my prayer is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would step into this And then when you step into it, then Christ would come to dwell inside of you. And so that when you walk out of it, then you would carry that glow with you. The Christ would dwell in your hearts. Not all of those other things that we run after, search after. No, Christ. The Christ would be in the heart. And how many of us grew up listening to statements like, follow your heart, right? It was all about what's in your heart. I don't want anything in my heart other than Christ. Christ would dwell in my heart. And he says, as you begin to do this, then something happens. He says that you would be rooted and grounded in love. That you would be rooted and grounded in love. So you step into the love of God. Then you step out. And when I step out, I'm not saying you step out of the love of God. I'm just kind of trying to create a picture of like stepping out back into the rest of life. And in Colossians, Paul tells us that when you step into the love of God, he says, uh, may you actually be clothed in the love of God. And so it's like you step into the love of God and you, you like, you begin to wear the love of God with you. And so you step out and now you're like wearing it. And as you're wearing it, now you're walking through life and you are clothed or you are wearing the love of God. Now, when you begin to be rooted and grounded in love, a few things begin to happen. 
A few things begin to happen. First, in verse one, I just want to give you two implications of this. Verse one of chapter three, this is the first thing that happens. He says, for this reason, this reason is the gospel, okay? He's ending chapter two, for this reason, because of what Christ did, how he brought us near. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Oh, the first thing that happens when you step into the love of God is that when you then step into the next part of life, it completely upends or changes your identity. See, when Paul is writing it in this moment, he's saying, I I am Paul, a prisoner uh, of Christ Jesus. Paul is actually literally a prisoner of Rome in that moment. His, His hands are chained, right? He's in a cell, like a literal cell. He's an actual prisoner of Rome. But Paul says, I've stepped into the love of God. And because of this gospel, which worked its way in me, now uh, uh, my entire identity has changed. And he looks at his current circumstances. He looks at the thing that would most obviously define somebody in his current circumstance. He's a prisoner of the empire of Rome. And he says, oh, that, that's a little thing. That's a little thing. That doesn't define me. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I will not be enslaved by anything that is not him. Rome can do what it wants to me. I am clothed in Christ now. See, when you step into the love of God and when you experience the love of God the way that you're supposed to, it begins to change your identity where you can no longer then walk in the love of God and also allow yourself either by yourself or by someone else to be identified at the deepest part of who you are by anything other than Christ. Nothing other than Christ. You can't define me by my past. You can't define me by my failure. You, failure. You can't define me by my fear. You can't be defined by the place you've had your most success. You can't be defined by the place you've had your least success. You are now defined by Christ. You walk in the fullness of the identity of Jesus now. You wear it like a clothing. And stepping into the love of God then, begins to, it it alters your identity. By the way, this is also why Christian, we never use adjectives to describe a Christian. Paul says, you used to be those things. You following me? You say, oh, that's a greedy Christian. Oh, that's a whatever. No, no, Paul says, you used to be those things. When you step into the love of God, you leave the sin behind you step into the love of God because you see how perfect and holy he is, you don't want to bring any of that sin in with you into that. And so as you step into the love of God, as Romans says, Paul writes it this way, that when you experience the grace of God, what it does is it just begins to melt away all of those other false idols and identities and sins that you used to turn to, every single one of them. There is no sin that the gospel can't melt. There is no false identity that the gospel can't melt. And we live in a culture right now that tells us that there are certain identities that can't be changed and certain identities that can't be left behind. And so what you do is you take that identity and you just carry it in with you. 
This is completely opposite of what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, yes, we all walk in carrying false identity, sin issues. We walk in and then we're transformed by it and we walk out different. Let me give you an example that makes sense, okay? You walk in as Steve Urkel. You walk out as Stefan Arkell. Following me? Okay. Anyone under 25, just don't worry about it. You walk in something and walk out something different. Oh, and dare we never to believe a gospel that would say that a false identity of sin is more powerful than the love of God. May we not make excuse, but let the love of God and the gospel do its work that begins to melt away the heart of sin and stone so that we can walk in the fullness of the love of God now, unhindered by sin, free from it. That's the power of the gospel. That's a gospel I want to believe in. That's a modern gospel that says you walk in like one thing, you walk out, you're not really that much different, but you claim you have Jesus with you. That's not the gospel. Oh, the gospel's so much better than that. <laughs> the gospel is there's a power at work within you that can free you. That's better. And so the first thing it does is the gospel begins to alter your identity. It takes a claim over your identity. The second thing it begins to do is uh, in verse 13, he says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It changes your purpose uh, and it changes the way that you face every single endeavor, every one of them. Oh, you've stepped into the gospel and now you're wearing the gospel of love with you. And now no matter what you face, you now face it in the power of God's love and it changes how you uh, face every endeavor. It changes how you walk. And whenever circumstances arise, there would have been a non-gospel way to respond, but now there's a clothed in the gospel way to respond. Paul says, hey, this whole suffering that's happening to me right now, don't even worry about that. I don't want you guys to get so caught up in my suffering. I know they're going to hang me and, well, cut his head off. But, you know, they're going to do that and I'm going to die and it's really okay. Don't give it a second thought. There's something way more important that you need to know and that's about the gospel breaking in. <laughs> Paul, he's just trying to be an example here. And now, some of us may face worse things than, than even that, and that, that's possible, I get it. But what Paul is setting up is an example of he was facing something that was pretty dire, which was his pending death, which actually came to be, right? Remember when the church looked at him and they're like, hey, Paul, if you go to at or Rome, Rome, they're gonna kill you, don't go. And Paul goes, no, I know they're gonna kill me. That's kind of why I'm going. Because when you step into the gospel and then you step back out and you're clothed in the love of God, it begins to change the way you face every single circumstance. Said another way, just to give you maybe another frame to look at this, it's like stepping in and then when you begin to look out, uh, like your perspective changes through this gospel lens. I think I've told you guys this story before. I got my glasses in ninth grade. First time I ever went golfing with my new glasses on. I leaned down 
because I had always seen people doing this. They'd always look and they'd be like, oh, I think it's going to break that way, right? And so I thought, well, I'm supposed to do that too. So I get down, I'm like, oh, I think it's going to break that way, right? So the first time I had my glasses on, I went down and I go, whoa, you can see things. That's why they were doing that. This is amazing. Still missed the pot, but oh, when you step into the gospel and you look out, you go, oh, oh, I can see things. That's how that person kept going. That's why they didn't give up hope. That's why they could still have joy in the midst of that. That's why their faith was unwavering. That's why they kept praying and believing. That's why they wouldn't cower to that situation. That's why they had courage in the midst of that because they were seeing through the lens of the gospel. And now they're wearing the gospel out. This is why Daniel could keep praying when they said, if you pray, you're going to get thrown into the lion's den. That's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like, throw us in the fire. We don't care. Christ is with us. Because they were beginning to see things even then through the lens of the gospel. I mean, we live in a world right now where people get this. I know it's crazy to you. People are afraid. Like we live in a world right now where people are terrified. Terrified of what's going on economically. Terrified of what's going on politically. Terrified of what's going on socially. Terrified of what's going on uh, even now internationally. Terrified of what's going on healthily. I don't even know if that's a word, but I need a better one to describe it. But you get what I'm saying. And people are terrified and they're walking around and Christians ought to be walking around going, listen, I'm not trying to be prideful, but I don't know why you're scared because I'm clothed in the gospel. Let me show you something. My God didn't give me a spirit of fear. I stepped into the gospel and now I step out and I ain't scared. Because I've been clothed in the gospel. I've been clothed in it. It's the only lens on which I see now. The only lens. I don't have multiple lenses. I've got one. The gospel. I just see everything. You just see everything through it. Oh, and here's the beauty of this gospel. Let me tell you, uh, that's two things it does to you. It changes your identity and gives you a strength and a courage for every situation. I mean, two things that it then compels. Two things that are beautiful out of that. I don't know. My labels are messed up. Don't worry about it. Two more things. First thing, this gospel, verse 17. And by 17, I mean 18, verse 18 that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. First thing about this love of God, Paul says it earlier this way. He says, I, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, unsearchable riches of Christ. Oh, the first thing about this love of God that changes your identity and gives you that courage, it's unsearchable. You'll never fully understand it. There's always more to learn. That's why it cracks me up when people are like, oh, I read the Bible. 
Yeah, I got that. It's not a textbook. You probably didn't read that either. It's not whatever you read. It's not, it's not a one-time through. It's not how I read that. No, it is the unsearchable riches of the grace of Christ. There, it, you remember the law of diminishing marginal utility in economics 101? What was it? It was the first drink of Dr. Pepper is delicious. The last drink of Dr. Pepper, especially after your four-year-old has had some, is horrible. Some of us look at Christianity like we step out, we experience the love of God, and then we just start a mundane journey walking along until we die. You get here and you're like, yep, read that. Yep, oh, no, I went to church. Yep, I've been to a service before. Yep, I did that. Oh, I did that like 25 years ago. Oh, I did catechism then. Oh, I did this, that. And you're just walking along. You're like, at some point, does this end? No, that's not it. That's not it at all. Instead, it's like you walk into this thing and then this thing just like walks with you. But every time you walk, you like drink a sip of Dr. Pepper and then somebody comes up and gives you a brand new one and you just keep drinking the first drink over and over again. See, it's unsearchable. Paul says, you got to even have a strength to understand the fullness of it. The entire Christian life is about hopping back in and understanding this gospel deeper and deeper and more and more. And every time you do, whether you're 25 or 35 or 45 or 55 or 65 or 75 or 85 or 95, every time you hop back into it, there's more to learn about the love of God. There's more to learn about the gospel. And every time you learn more and more, what it does is it begins to chip away at those false identities and it begins to give you a courage or it begins to clear the lens of how you look at everything. And as you walk in this love then and you understand the gospel of love more and more as you walk down this journey of life, then what it does is you're just continuously peeling away all of these false identities and you're leaving them behind and you're leaving them behind. And you're getting a greater, greater courage and strength and clarity on what it means to live for the gospel. And the thing that is doing that all along is the love of God. Just the love of God, God's love, the gospel, over and over, over and over, over and over. Which, by the way, means if you're stuck right now spiritually, I've had meetings with friends. Like, man, I'm just nowhere spiritually. I just, I don't get it. I'm angry, I'm this, I'm that, or whatever. What's the path forward? The path forward is the path always. Go back to the gospel, man. Go back to the gospel. Oh, just remember the goodness of the love of God. His blood on the cross. Sink yourself more deeply in that. Oh, it'll free you then. The gospel's always the answer. It's unsearchable. There's more to learn. Don't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Keep going. Oh, the second thing that begins to happen then is as the gospel breaks in, as the love of God begins to flood into your heart, and then as you begin to walk in love, you just have this compulsion to share it. So Paul writes it this way. Somewhere in this book. Okay, verse 8. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, what? To preach 
to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was like, I, I, I stepped in and I experienced the love of God. And then I came out and I was so compelled by experiencing the love of God that I had to go preach it to people. And he's writing to a, to a Jewish audience and like, oh, so you want to come preach it to all of us, your friends who are Jews, right? Uh, so that we might experience it too. And he, he was like, nope, I, I, not to you guys. In fact, I'm just going to skip by you guys because Peter can handle y'all. I went to the people that we hated the most because I wanted to show that the gospel can compel me to love even those I most disagree with. That the gospel can actually heal the deepest divides. That the gospel is actually powerful enough to fix and to restore the most broken relationship, the greatest of racial tensions, all of the labels and everything that we put on that say nothing can fix this. Let's come up with a new theory. Let's come up with a new policy. Let's come up with a new something. Nope, the best solution was already given. Christ and the gospel. So Paul said, I felt compelled to go preach it. And so he did. And then the gospel breaks in. The gospel just breaks in. And when the gospel breaks in, it can't help but break out. It can't help but break out. And so in verse 10, verse 10, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Through the church. Ah, this is where we come in, friends. That we are given a job then. We're given an opportunity. We're given a privilege. We're given a whatever you want to call it. To step into the love of God. Remember, as I said earlier, when we step in, we step in, we have this personal relationship with God, but our personal relationship with God never stays personal in the scriptures. And so then other people step in and then we form a community called the church that is circling around the love of God that God experienced in himself. And it's supposed to reflect that selfless nature and that service of one another. And then together we walk in the love of God. And as we walk in the love of God, then we feel a compulsion to share that love. And that through the church, God's plan of redemption from the beginning was the gospel through his church. The gospel that is doctrinally sound and experientially rich. That gospel. Love and truth stacked on each other. That gospel. Then through the church carries out. And Paul says, hey, I just want to tell you. In verse 20. Some of you might be hearing this verse in context for the first time. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church. Uh, Paul ends it with, you know how much God wants to extend his love to a broken world? You know how much he wants the world to know of his love, to be freed from the sin, to have their identities changed and rooted now in his gospel as opposed to all the false identities that the world will create? You know how much he wants his world and the people in it to be able to walk through the lens of the gospel and see everything differently? He says, it's so good, I will do far more abundantly than you could think or ask or imagine in extending it. See, that verse is not some like superficial prayer to get you something way better than you ever thought you could get. No, it's a verse that says God can do way better in extending his gospel than we could ever believe. And that should be our deepest prayer. So friend, 
first, as Paul said, do you remember? Do you remember when you were alienated from Christ? And then he just drew you back into the gospel. Do you remember that? Isn't it beautiful? Have you allowed that love to begin to uproot every part of your identity? Any part of your identity that you're still building on yourself or on the world? Have you let it uproot it? Are you walking in the full gospel lens where you begin to view everything through the eyes of the gospel? And then, together, man, let's share this love. Let's just let people know Jesus loves them. And he wants to heal them, free them, and that he sees them. And so I'll do my part over the next six weeks, and I'm just going to preach about how Jesus sees us and frees us and heals us. And I hope, even as we look at those encounters, that it might deepen you in the love of God further. And I hope we don't see this just as a superficial series on like basic encounters with Christ. No, I hope you see in every one of these stories how the gospel gets to the very bottom of who we are. These are not just stories of superficial change. These are stories of whole life transformation of which you and I are probably still on a journey to. And we'll let the gospel break in and break in and break in and break in. And then it'll break out and out and out and out to a world that needs it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this gospel. Whew, it's good. Father, forgive us where we have built ourselves in identity on anything other than the gospel. Maybe we just experience the love of God again in such a way that makes us want to uproot that identity and walk in your love. Father, help us to have clarity of gospel lens. Whatever we're facing right now, we would be able to see it through the lens of the gospel, that it would bring clarity to every circumstance, giving us the hope and the confidence and the grace that you want us to be able to walk in. Oh, and Father, stir in us as we experience your love and desire to share it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.